early 1874, a man named Fred Hughes wrote a letter. Normally, this is nothing to talk about, seeing as random people write random letters all the time. Except, Fred Hughes was not a random person. He was the clerk of the Chiricahua Reservation, having been hired by Tom Jeffords in 1873, shortly after the treaty with Cochise had been finalized. And this wasn't some random letter. It was addressed to the Las Cruces Borderer newspaper, and in it, Hughes made the offhand remark that he thought it would be a good idea to combine Cochise's Chaconans with the various Chihenny bands on a reservation in New Mexico. In his mind, this would end, once and for all, the issues with raiding down into Sonora. And, almost unbelievably for us who have followed along with the American-Apache relations for the past half-decade, he was certain that only a half-dozen warriors or so would object to being moved. Hughes wrote what he thought was a random, innocuous letter expressing his personal view on things when it came to the Apache. What he didn't expect was for his suggestion to suddenly become U.S. policy. The only problem is, it did. Because a man named Levi Edwin Dudley read it and sent it along to his superiors in Washington. They liked what Hughes had written. A lot. And with that, the U.S. government opened up a whole new can of worms when it came to the Apaches and the Yavapai. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 68, The Apache Would Get a Square Deal. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as the reservation set up by Collier and Howard, and onto which Crook had shepherded every last Apache and Yavapai he could find, began to crumble. Instability, factional rivalries, lack of supplies, and competing interests from American merchants all combined to ensure that the peace that had been finally won and agreed to in 1873 would fracture within two years. We also bid a fond farewell to Cochise, the great and terrible, who, though he didn't know it, had the good fortune to die in mid-1874, just before things got really bad. But before we circle back around to Levi Dudley and why it was so disastrous that he had read Hugh's letter, I want to turn our attention back to the situation on the San Carlos Reservation. As you might remember from last week, Officials were actually considering scuttling the whole reservation and moving everyone to Fort Apache. After going through Indian agents about as quickly as you change the oil in your car, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in Washington, a man by the name of Edward P. Smith, simply couldn't find anyone brave enough to do the job. But that's when he remembered a bright young man he had met a couple years earlier in New Mexico while seeing the West with General Howard. So I guess it's time now to introduce the one and only John Clum. John Philip Clum had been born in 1851 near Claverack, New York, to farmers of Dutch and German descent. 
he would attend what was then called Rutgers College to study divinity, but found time to play on the school's football team and, according to one source at least, played in what was only the second game between Rutgers and its then-arch-rival Princeton. However, school didn't hold that much interest for Klum, as he heard that the Army was launching a meteorological division. So instead of going back to Rutgers for his sophomore year, he joined the Signal Corps and was sent to Santa Fe. Now, I've seen it written both that Smith sent out feelers through his connections to find Klum, or that Rutgers was asked for a recommendation and they suggested the man. Either way, Smith determined Klum was the guy. Despite being only 23, he was educated, ambitious, intelligent, and obviously adventurous. Plus, he just so happened to be a member of the Dutch Reformed Church, the denomination tasked with selecting agents in Arizona under President Grant's peace policy. And despite the danger of the job and the extremely low pay of $1,500 a year, roughly $35,000 in today's money, Klum accepted the gig. Smith secured his release from the Signal Corps, and the young man traveled to Washington to confer with both Smith and General Howard about his new assignment. He was briefed on the whole situation, including the various Apache divisions, the Camp Grant massacre, and the prominent individuals in the area. Then, with Vincent Collier's notes to keep him company, he set out for his assignment. His trip, which went by the way of St. Louis, San Francisco, San Diego, and Tucson, took a full three and a half months. His Tucson stage driver was incredulous at this young man's purpose, supposedly telling him that he better get back home to the farm in order to save both his money and his scalp. To this, Clum smugly replied that the government had paid for his traveling expenses, so he couldn't lose any money. Then, removing his hat to reveal his prematurely bald head, he said, quote, And having no hair, I cannot very well lose my scalp. End quote. Brave words, but that still didn't stop him from buying the latest revolver in some ammunition while in the old Pueblo. From his interviews and readings on the subject, Clum had been converted to Grant's peace policy long before he set foot on San Carlos. In what might be one of the most astute American observations on the situation, he would write, quote, These red men were simple and nomadic, yes, but they formed a nation with laws, legends, and a history. Our noble white government had bought the Apaches' land and their homes, but had not told the Apaches anything about the deal. And now, because the Apaches got sore about it, our government was extending protection and guidance on the one hand and cutting out their hearts with the other. End quote. With that in mind, when he arrived at his new assignment, Clum would say, quote, I determined that the Apache would get a square deal. End quote. His idolism would be tested a bit when he got to San Carlos in August 1874 and was greeted by the sight of the rotting heads of seven Apache warriors on the parade ground of the nearby military camp. Some had been there for at least two weeks. Of all the desolate, isolated human habitations, Clem would write of his first impressions. Within days, warriors would ride into his headquarters with a burlap sack that contained the head of the rebel Yavapai warrior Delshay, which, if you remember from last episode, was the second Grizzly Trophy trying to claim that honor. 
But if Clum had one attribute, and he had many, both good and bad, it was guts. He simply showed no fear, a quality that was always valued by the Apache. He also possessed this philosophy that if he treated them with fairness and respect, they would respond favorably. I know, crazy, right? After his arrival, he held a meeting with several hundred of the Pinal and Aravipa Apache. Howard had given him a letter of introduction to Eskimizen, with whom he would form a fast friendship. At this meeting, he brought large baskets of tobacco and cigarette papers to set everyone at ease before getting into business. His proposition must have been intriguing to the Apache. Clum wanted his charges to not feel like cattle just being corralled into one place. No, he wanted them to be invested in the reservation's success. And that meant welcoming them into leadership positions. Clum wanted the Apache to help govern the reservation themselves. That meant recruiting Apache as a tribal police force to monitor each other, which had the added benefit of keeping soldiers away from their settlements. Any offenders would then be tried by an Apache court and thrown in a guardhouse overseen by Apache jailers. Though one source noted skeptically that Clum kept the position as chief justice. He also expressed that his was what we would term today an open-door policy. Clum wanted to hear complaints and feedback, making everyone feel like they had a voice. But all this also did come with some rules. For example, the Apache were to turn in all their weapons, but they could be checked out again to go hunting. Everyone was expected to work six days a week, with the promise that they would be paid in paper script redeemable at the agency store. And finally, alcohol of any stripe, whether homemade or imported, was now banned altogether. All in all, though, Clum's administration seemed like a good idea, and within a few days he had the nucleus of his native police force. This would soon prove its worth when it broke up a moonshining operation of 75 Apache who had been distilling tulipi, which appears to have been a stronger form of Tiswin. Everyone was hauled before the local courts, where they were sentenced to 15 days hard labor. To commemorate the occasion, the head of the police force would give a buckskin suit to Clum, who was now being called Nantan Bitunekie, or Leader with the High Forehead. But a more serious test of this new police force occurred a few weeks later. The chief of one of the bands at the reservation, who had actually helped bring in Delshay's head, had become increasingly arrogant and come into conflict with Clum. After this chief physically abused one of his wives, he'd actually tied her down and thrown knives at her for fun, he was publicly rebuked by Clum. As you might expect, the chief did not take this well, so he acquired a pistol and went looking to use it. He charged into Clum's office and would have killed him then and there, but he was shot and killed by one of the police officers. The real kicker is that the police officer was not only a member of the chief's band, but he was actually his brother as well. That should give you a sense of the loyalty the young Indian agent had managed to earn among his charges. In short, Clum was a reformer, and a remarkably successful one at that, who managed to do great things, at least at this stage.
Normally, this would be something to celebrate, but Clum's policies and successes led to something much darker. Because as Indian Commissioner Smith in Washington learned of what he had achieved, he started thinking back to that letter from Fred Hughes. Consolidation was the buzzword in Indian affairs at the time, and something the government was already doing with the Plains tribes. If, as the reasoning went, Clem was doing so well with the Apache in southern Arizona, why not send him even more Apache by closing other reservations and ultimately saving some money in the process? Today, we know that the answer to why not is a complex web of ancient rivalries, distinct cultures, traditional homelands, and the fact that this was in clear violation of previous agreements, but it seems the Bureau of Indian Affairs spent very little time considering such things. To that end, they had already sent Levi Edwin Dudley as a special Indian commissioner to look into the matter. Dudley was sent specifically to broach the idea of consolidation with the Chaconans, and he was the official who met with Cochise at the end of his life, which I mentioned last week. But as Clum came on and started having remarkable success, Dudley next got the idea of consolidating not only the Chiricahua Apache onto San Carlos, but the Tonto and Yavapai at Camp Verde as well. General George Crook and his military officers cried foul over this, blaming the move once again on the infamous Indian Ring in Tucson, which was making bad policy just to line their pockets. The bands living at Camp Verde had just finished clearing and irrigating their land and hadn't had the chance to see the benefits yet. Furthermore, Crook had promised the bands that had settled at Camp Verde that they could remain there, in their traditional homelands, if they were to settle down. There was no bones about it. This new policy was making him a liar. Now, I feel like I have done Crook something of a disservice in the podcast so far, as he has come off rather as a hard-nosed villain. That's not to say that he couldn't be vengeful and hard-nosed. I mean, he did literally order his men to bring in people's heads last episode. But he was a believer in fairness. According to Burke, his biographer, Crook believed in things like education for the Amerindians, not in so-called Indian schools where boys and girls were forcefully taken from their parents and taught to be white, but in schools based on the reservations. Also, he believed the government should have done more to provide them work, something they could take pride in and earn wealth from. If they were being forced to labor, show them there was an actual benefit to it. Crook's philosophy, as presented by Burke, is that these were people, real, thinking, feeling people, who had been brought up in one system, and wouldn't submit to another until they were shown there was something to gain from it. Finally, Crook understood that all the Amerindians he encountered hated liars. Unlike Burke, I'm not going to pretend Crook was a saint. He could be a harsh man who craved military greatness, even if he hit it much better than his rival George Armstrong Custer. And, as you probably gathered, his brand of Indian policy was of a very patronizing kind with little respect for Apache and Yavapai culture. But, as we'll see, the U.S. could do, and ultimately did do, a lot worse than Crook. And if I can maybe go off on a small tangent for a moment, Indian affairs isn't the only thing Crook managed while in Arizona. He had broken up military camps that were hotbeds of disease. 
established regular wagon routes between the major posts of the territory, brought in long telegraph lines, had his scouts map trails, and even planned to beautify military posts with vines and trees. Ultimately, though, at the end of his time in Arizona, he was powerless to stop the removal of the Tonto Apache and Yavapai, both because he didn't have the authority to stop it, and because in March 1875, just days after the forceful removal began, new orders came down the line. Impressed with his campaigning in Arizona, Crook was wanted in Nebraska to help with the brewing conflict with the Sioux. So, though he was wined and dined in Prescott for his great service to Arizona, one of his last official acts in the territory was to give aid to Dudley for the removal of the Amerindians at Camp Verde. On February 27, 1875, the March of Tears, as the Yavapai called it, began. They had protested the move, and loudly at that, but ultimately they were told that this came from the great white father himself, and so nothing could be done. Nearly 1,500 Yavapai and Tonto Apache were to walk the 180 miles to San Carlos. The military officers over Camp Verde had begged Dudley to go a longer route around the mountains between the two sites, and to use wagons to help carry the women and children and reduce the number of deaths along the way. But Dudley, who, if anyone is the villain of today's episode, chose to go over the mountains, and to the request for wagons is supposed to have replied, quote, They are Indians. Let the beggars walk. End quote. Can I get a boo and a hiss for this guy? A pack train of 55 mules with a small herd of cattle had been procured for the trip, with Dudley writing Clum to ask that he be prepared with more supplies when they got closer to San Carlos. The packed supplies would only last one week, and the cattle couldn't keep up with the train, as no one had thought to hire experienced cowboys from Prescott to herd them. Almost immediately... Because, remember, this is winter in the high country, a snowstorm delayed their progress. This is where you get the heart-wrenching stories of people carrying everything they own in baskets on their backs, or clothing and moccasins wearing out on sharp rocks, or because of brush and cactus. But Dudley wouldn't allow any stops, or anything that would slacken the pace. Those forced to make the march came to call him Come Along for the merciless way he drove them. Amidst all of this, there were some scenes of humanity, like the cavalry officers, not Dudley's fans to begin with, who would dismount from their own horses to allow children or the elderly to ride. And just for fun, remember that we are dealing with both the Yavapai and Tonto Apache here. They are not the same people, and had a very complicated relationship. For example, the Yavapai marched way behind the Tonto Apache because they did not trust them enough to walk alongside or in front of them. Disagreements over some slain deer would actually erupt into violence during the trek, which led to gunshots and eventually some Yavapai slipping off from the group to hide in the mountains. The final major obstacle was crossing a swollen salt river. Because, once again, we are doing this just as winter is crossing over into spring for reasons passing understanding. A Yavapai girl who made the trek would later recall that the weaker ones 
were simply washed away in the current, while those who did survive resembled drowned rats more than people. To be fair, Dudley, in his memoirs of the incident, said the crossing of the Salt River reminded him of the crossing of the Red Sea, but there was no Moses to part the water. He even writes that the pitiful sight brought tears to his eyes, though historian and author Paul Andrew Hutton is quick to dismiss these as crocodile tears. It shouldn't come as any surprise that after this river crossing, and with no more rations, and a night spent in freezing temperatures, the Yafapai were ready to revolt, and they went so far as to have men put on war paint. At one point, a shot even went off over Dudley's head, and he quickly rode out of the camp to find Clum and bring back some food to calm everyone's nerves. Burke, Crook's biographer, summed up the outrage of everyone in the military about the forced removal to San Carlos when he wrote, quote, It was an outrageous proceeding, one for which I should still blush had I not long since gotten over blushing for anything that the United States government did in Indian matters, end quote. Of course, Burke would leave the territory with Crook before he could see the next thing that would challenge his ability not to blush. As the new arrivals were getting settled at San Carlos, Clum now counted roughly 1,360 Amerindians that had come with Dudley, which doubled the number of charges under his watchful care. And if you're keeping track at home, yes, that number means roughly 150 people had either died or ran away between leaving Camp Verde and arriving at San Carlos. But what came next highlights some of the downsides of Clum's character. Yes, he was shrewd, brilliant, and had a fearless personality that could go toe-to-toe with anyone he came across. But as a couple of historians have pointed out, he was also cocky to the point of arrogance and would not tolerate anyone who disagreed with his views. Clum also had a strong dislike for the military and was confrontational in nearly all his dealings with army officers. It's unclear whether this was his native temperament or something that he grew into, maybe because of the stories from others who were boosters of Grant's peace policy, but in either case, he would exert all his influence to remove the army as much as possible from Amerindian affairs. According to Edwin R. Sweeney, this separated him from Crook, who could barely tolerate Indian agents, but who always managed to use diplomacy and tact, two words you never see applied to Clum. Finally, we have the consolidation policy. One historian noted that Clum did not propose or initiate the gathering of all Apache at San Carlos, but he wholeheartedly embraced it. And unfortunately, he did so for the worst possible reason. Ego. Quite simply, the more Apache he had under him at San Carlos, the more important he became. Each new band that moved to his reservation was a feather in his cap, and assigned to the government of his indispensability. Even worse, he began to believe in his own hype, so even if Apache had to be dragged to his care unwillingly, it would be better for them in the long run. Convinced of his own brilliance, Clum now measured his success in the number of Apache he oversaw. Which brings us to Fort Apache. San Carlos was really just a southern subset of that reservation, though for all intents and purposes, it kind of operated independently. 
Like all the other reservations, Fort Apache had its own problems, mostly dealing with the frictions between the Indian agent and the military. I plan to touch on this much more in a coming episode, but suffice it to say, the Indian agent around this time was caught up in a scandal that involved straight-up extortion to allow American miners to work on reservation land. Though the agent will be cleared of all charges, he was widely acknowledged as a drunk and lax disciplinarian, which led to the military taking over the reservation. So, in March 1875, Indian Commissioner Smith in Washington invited Clum to fill in as the acting agent for Fort Apache while a replacement was sought. And you can probably see where this is going. His head already inflated to outrageous proportions, Clum started making noise about bringing all the white mountain Apache down to join his gaggle of bands at San Carlos. Because of his personality, he got along no better with the army officers at Fort Apache than the man he was filling in for. In fact, historian Paul Andrew Hutton relates that on his first visit, Clum was actually arrested because he was riding his horse too fast across the fort's parade grounds. For months, a virtual three-way tug-of-war occurred between Clum, his superiors in Washington, and the -the on-the-scene army officer about the fate of the reservation. It seems no one bothered to solicit the opinion of the various white mountain bands and other Apache living there. I will tell you right now, though, that they wanted nothing to do with moving away from their home in the high country. However, in June 1875, Indian Commissioner Smith finally gave in to Clum's proposal and gave him the go-ahead to bring everyone down to San Carlos. So on June 22nd, Clum arrived and probably blowing a big raspberry at the army officers on the way, met with the heads of the various bands to break the news to them. The Apache were not happy and immediately refused to be removed. As he had done to welcome those from Camp Verde, Eskimson stepped in to convince his fellow Apache that San Carlos and Clum were not so bad. I've seen two versions of what happened next. In one telling, the band still refused to move, so Clum convinced them in the most heavy-handed way he knew how. He gathered up all the reservation's rations onto wagons and then burned the agency's buildings. In the other telling, Eskimison was able to persuade most everyone to come willingly, but Clum still took all the rations and burned the agency's buildings to cinders as a final slap in the face to the military. Whichever telling is accurate, at the end of the day, Clum still resorted to some very petty and destructive theatrics just to get his way. I guess Harvey Dent was right. You either die a hero or see yourself live long enough to become the villain. Of the 1,800 Amerindians living at the reservation, Clum allowed 1,100 to stay for the moment. Of those, 600 were to finish gathering crops, while the remaining 500 were the families of recruited Apache scouts, or those who still defied the order to move. That left 700 who were sent down south to San Carlos. By the end of the summer of 1875, Clum now had officially 4,200 Apache registered and taking rations at San Carlos. 
Of course, it didn't bother him any that many of the families he had relocated still went to plant their traditional fields near Fort Apache while still collecting their rations from him. No, he was playing a numbers game, and right now, the numbers made him look amazing. And so, he got just a little bit bigger for his britches. When he received the news of this latest consolidation, Crook complained loudly about it. He would write, quote, The Indians at Apache were a mountain Indian, and the heat and dust of San Carlos Agency was quite equal at times to that of Yuma, besides being malarious. Their removal was one of those cruel things that greed had so often inflicted on the Indian. End quote. But, as I said, Crook was already out the door on his way to the Great Plains, so his objections were noted, but not acted upon. Clum, meanwhile, looked around and saw that most of the Apache in Arizona were now under his benevolent care. But you'll note I said most, and not all. So join me next week, when we will watch as the problems of the Chiricahua Reservation continue to spiral out of control, which will lead Clum to try and bring those last few bands under his personal jurisdiction. Unfortunately, as we will see, his greediness to be the guy over Indian affairs in Arizona will eventually lead to his resignation and the total breakdown of what we now know was only a temporary piece in the long, sad history of the Apache Wars. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.